Daniel uh, chapter 8 is where we find ourselves today. I'll give you a second to turn there. Um, Daniel chapter 8. Okay, so I want to, uh, I just kind of want to jump into this real quick. Uh, not a lot of introduction. Oh. Hold on a second. Got ahead of myself. We do have Bible verses this morning. I skipped them. Uh, that's okay. I'm just going to read them to you. For, uh, we are in week 18 of our Bible memory. Um, I didn't get... Week 17 done, I got a couple verses that I'm struggling with, so we're all in it together, we're, we're all there. Just do your best, pick up wherever you're at. Uh, so week 18, first verse, 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for, for correction, for righteous instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Hebrews 4.11, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So work on those verses. Work on wherever you're at. Just keep plodding along. Um, all right, Daniel chapter 8. That's where we're at. Uh, we looked last week at Daniel chapter 7. We kind of concluded with a discussion about the, the fourth beast um, and reality that one way or, the, or another, there is a coalescence of the enemies of God into a political entity, that there is... Uh, for believers, some expectation of persecution, some expectation, uh, and really a, a joyful expectation of deliverance and um, expectation of victory in all of those matters. So those are there's a lot of hope to be derived from that. Remember the key theme there was uh, the the restoration, the ultimate subjugation of all of God's enemies. And that and and deliverance of God's people, and that illustrated by the restoration of Israel and their deliverance from the bondage they were in. Um, we pick up in Daniel chapter eight, and we find Daniel with yet another vision. So let's read this. Let's, I want to read the first eight verses, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about those eight verses. And that's probably what we're going to get through this morning. Um, but that's okay. So turn with me to Daniel chapter eight, verse one. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass that I saw that it, I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision, I was by the river of Uli. Then I left, lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him, neither was there 
any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as it was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And it came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river and ran into him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him and smote the ram and break his horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore, the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, for it came up, uh, and, fro- for, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Now, there's a couple of consistent things that we find in Daniel. As we look at these beasts, we find that they represent empires. As we look at the horns that, that are there, we find that they represent kings. That's a fairly consistent theme throughout Daniel. It's also a fairly consistent theme throughout uh, apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature. So, and, and there's nothing different here, okay? A couple of things. We, we need some summary for context, okay? This was written uh, about two years after the vision of chapter 7. And you'll notice that, if, or I'll put it in your remembrance, that Chapters 7 and 8 are out of context, or chronological order, rather, with chapter 5. And I think there's a significant reason for that, and we're going to kind of progress through that over the next couple of weeks. I think that it's not by accident. I think that Daniel, inspired by God, made that change. We're going to lay some foundation for that this morning. Because there is a significant change in the text. We don't see it in the English but there is a significant change. We'll remember that a lot of Daniel, chapters 2, part of chapter 1, chapter 2, all the way through chapter uh, 7, is written in Aramaic. It's written in the language of Babylon. From chapter 8 to the end of chapter 12, is written in Hebrew. I think that is a significant indicator for us to be aware of, and that's why I point it out. It indicates a shift in the audience. Daniel is no longer, you remember in in chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar has his vision and Daniel interprets it, that was a, a similar vision, same kingdoms being discussed in part, and so all these things are coming together, but it is a vision given to Nebuchadnezzar. And it's shared with Nebuchadnezzar, and the interpretation is given to him, and it's representative of the same periods of time. While it may be more general, it does represent the same things. And then as we, get, as we progress through, we see these other visions in Daniel chapter 7, for instance. There is some sense there that it's still, there is some significance for the people there in Babylon, for, for all people. But as we get into Hebrews chapter 8, excuse me, Daniel chapter 8, which is written in Hebrew, the audience has shifted. And we know the audience has shifted because the language has changed. This is being recorded and written so that the people that are there that are going to read it can understand it. 
It indicates that the subject matter is of particular importance to the Jews. Particular importance to the Jews. Ultimately, this prophecy that we're reading about here deals with Persia and Greece as they relate to Israel. As they relate to Israel. And that's key to the interpretation, especially the difficult portions. Uh, the chronological shift clarifies that the primary content and the primary importance uh, is the relation uh, of this information to Israel. Israel's relationship to the Gentile rule that they find themselves under. From Daniel's time forward. Okay, so, so keep all of that in mind. As we progress through this, we have to, we have to bear that in mind. It is a significant change in, in the language. It gives us key to the audience, which is a key to the interpretation. Part of hermeneutics is to consider the audience, who it's being written to. How would they understand this? And if we take those cues as we progress through this chapter, we're going to come to the end with a better understanding, and we're not going to get off kilter. Because I'll just be honest, Daniel chapter 8 is probably one of the most controversial eschatological passages in Scripture. It's a hard one. Not all of it. Some of it is very plain and very cut and dry. I think a lot of it probably is that way as well, but it is very controversial. Okay. Now, uh, let's, let's get into it. Okay. There's really a, not a lot of interpretation necessary. It's given to us in the chapter. So verses three and four, I lifted up my eyes and saw and behold, there stood before the river a ram with two horns, which is exactly what we'd expect a ram to have. And the two horns were high, but the one was higher than the other and the higher came up last. That's the description of this ram. And then he goes running around, pushing westward and northward and southward so that no beast could stand against it. That's a description of the Medo-Persian empire. And I know that because if I go read verse 20, which is where we have Daniel receiving interpretation from angelic beings. It says, from Gabriel himself, one of the archangels, one of the few named angels in Scripture. Okay, It's the same angel that went to Mary, and here he is giving Daniel interpretation. I don't think that's by coincidence either, though the significance of that is beyond the scope of what we're going to study. Just a little teaser for you. Okay. Verse 20, the, this is Gabriel speaking to Daniel. It says, the ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. It's very uncontroversial. It's very easy to interpret. <laughs> we're just told what it is. Okay? There, there's some symbolism here. And like I said, we're pretty consistently, the horns are representative of kings and the beasts or the animals themselves, the beasts or whatever they may be, are representative of empires. So the Medo-Persian Empire is symbolized here. We have these different kings. One, Persia rises up a little higher, ends up effectively taking over. In the end, there isn't a Medo-Persian Empire. It's really just the Persian Empire. That's sort of the way that it comes up. And, and it's the second portion. It's the Medo-Persian Empire, yet the Persians grow and grow and grow. I mean, it's very specific. And as we go through this morning, what we're going to find is that there is a significant amount of what we're looking at here, and we go look at history, and there's a lot of specificity in this prophecy that is fulfilled by the kingdoms that we're looking at. 
And I'm convinced that most, if not all, of Daniel chapter 8 is fulfilled history. This is a prophecy that's done. Therein enters the controversy. We'll unpack that next week. Okay, but here it is. We have two horns, one larger than the other. And then we have this list of cardinal directions. The ram pushes westward, northward, southward. As he goes through, these are the areas of conquest for the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, here's the map. Because trying to fill time, if I'm honest, a little bit, not really. But the Medo-Persian Empire, and I, and I bring this up because there's the great specificity. The Medo-Persian Empire starts in the east, right? North, south, east, west. You have the little compass down there by the camel. Starts in the east. And which ways does it expand? It expands west, north, and south. It doesn't go to the east. That's where it originated from. And while it's a small detail, I bring it up because we have this accuracy in prophecy. It's part of the criticism that liberal scholars will say this must have been written after the fact. It is too accurate to be written before the fact, which should give us some indication about their, their position on the character and the nature of God. God couldn't have given a prophecy or inspired anybody to write anything that was so specific is ultimately what they said. There is a limit to his power. There is a limit to his understanding, which is completely unbiblical. Okay, so here is the, the Medo-Persian Empire. They end up taking over Babylon. And we've read about that in the fall of, of Babylon in chapter 5 of Daniel. They take over Egypt. They take over Lydia, those areas. Ultimately, if you are a student of history, you know that Persia tries to get into Greece more than one time, and they're thwarted. They're, they're never really able to establish a, a, a base of operations or anywhere to expand from of any real significance in Greece. But that becomes a key thing as we move forward, because we get to this ram, excuse me, this goat, not a ram, a goat. Okay, we have this ram, the Medo-Persian Empire. We have this goat, and we read about the goat in verses 5 through 8. He comes, he's got a single horn. He comes from the west. He doesn't touch the ground, which is really a reference to how fast he's moving. That's, that's the idea here. Um, he attacks the Medo-Persian Empire. He attacks the ram. Uh, he ultimately destroys the ram. And ultimately, the horn of the goat is broken off in the midst of his power. It comes from the West, spread all over the entire known world with great speed, has a notable king represented in the horn. Here's the thing. There's a, there's a couple of... Greece, at this point in history, in Daniel's point in history, is largely unknown. And if it's known, it is very unregarded. It is not an empire. You have a few effectively tribal, like the Spartan, you know, they, 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 they come together into something greater than they are. But ultimately, you have these small kingdoms that, that exist in that region. And Grecia, Greece is just one of them. 
They're, they're not a significant world force. They're largely unknown. This is really the first time, maybe not the first time, but in Daniel is kind of really the first time we begin to read about them. The, there's other places we kind of get some reference to them in Jeremiah and so forth. We're going to look at one of those. There's just not a lot happening here. They're largely unknown. Yet here is God with great accuracy telling us that they are going to come and they're going to spread throughout the known world. And here's another map. Because it says that this goat comes from the West, which is absolutely accurate. Right? Over there near Italy, over there in what is known as Macedonia in Scripture, when Paul is going, he sees the Macedonian man. Where is he headed? He's headed to Europe. He's headed to that region surrounding Italy and, and what we know today is Italy, those areas. That's the Macedonian man. That's where they came from. Alexander the Great was son of the Macedonian king. That was his claim to fame. He comes from the West and with great rapidity just sweeps across all of the Medo-Persian Empire and conquers it. Again, this accuracy and prophecy. And I just want to put us in remembrance of that, that, the presupposition that God's word is true. When we begin with that position, when we begin that God is accurate, that he is completely and holy and accurately and trustworthy, worthily, it's not a word, but you understand what I mean, revealed to us what we need to know. And we operate under the second presupposition that that is true, that what he has revealed is true. We are building on a sure foundation. Just as we talked about when we looked in chapter five about Belshazzar, who was largely unknown, he's just one of the criticisms that liberal scholars would have of Daniel and must be some, he got things wrong as a fake prophetic book. It's really a history book and so on and so forth. And they make all these accusations. And then what happens? We start to discover things where, oh, here's Belshazzar named on these ancient documents. This is who he was. This is why he was there in authority. We begin to see that God's word was accurate all along. And we see that over and over and over throughout history. We would expect to find truth and accuracy in Scripture Let me rephrase that. We would expect to see truth and accuracy in the world around us because it's here in Scripture. What we find out there is simply the evidence of what we already read and know from what God has revealed. And it doesn't matter if it's creation, which is, which is a big one, it's a foundational one, or something as seemingly insignificant as this particular king in Babylon thousands of years ago, or a description of a kingdom that is yet to really gain any footing in the known world. God knows. In John chapter 17, just turn there with me for a moment. John chapter 17, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he's there praying with the Lord, and you know, you look at the other gospels and the disciples go with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they go and Jesus says, wait here. And then he proceeds and he prays and he's agonizing over the, the imminent 
death on the cross. He's agonizing over not just the death on the cross, but the becoming sin for all of mankind and the rejection of the Father as a result of that sin. And he begs, Lord, he doesn't beg, he asks, Lord, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. And that's really kind of all we see in the other Gospels. But in John's Gospel, we get insight into what is happening here. Into what Jesus is praying for. Yes, he does ask for that cup to pass from him. But he concludes that prayer with, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And then as we get into John chapter 17, what do we find him praying for? Not himself. He's praying for his disciples. He's praying for those who are going to come to faith. He's praying for you and I. And he's praying that we would be set apart for the task that God has given us. And the primary means whereby you and I or any other believer is going to be set apart, we read about in verse 17. John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy word. Excuse me, thy truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus says, set them apart, establish them, root them in the truth that is here, in the presupposition that what you have revealed in the Bible, in Scripture, is trustworthy and accurate and able to be stood upon. There's a reason that the Bible has been attacked. There's a reason for, for all kinds, uh, uh, from all different angles. Just as we look at creation and the foundation that it sets for the gospel, if we, can, if we can shake that foundation, then the rest will crumble. If we can establish somehow that the Bible is not the word of God, inspired, profitable for doctrine and proof and instruction and in righteousness, then I don't have to deal with my sinfulness. I don't have to deal with the reality that Jesus Christ was in fact the Savior, the Messiah, who without faith in him, I have no access to the Father and am dead in my sins. If we can crumble those foundational aspects, then we don't have to deal with the rest. There are reasons that that's the, the foundations are where the enemy is attacking. But what we find in Daniel is that the accuracy that comes in the prophecies there become a confirmation of the trustworthiness of the Word of God. With the small details, even seemingly insignificant, that the goat came from the West, which is where Macedonia lies, which is where Alexander the Great started his conquest from. With the little things like the goat didn't touch the ground as he was running toward this ram, you look at the amount of conquest, the territory that was garnered by Alexander the Great and all of his military might and the period of time, insignificant, tiny period of time that it took by comparison. Here it is. He takes over the entire known world. The entire known world in a few years. Accuracy and prophecy. And we add to that the motivation that we read about. If you'll turn with me back to Daniel chapter 8, we see this in the text before us. 
why was Dan, why was Alexander the Great so why did he have so much strife with Persia? Uh, and we, 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 here it is. It's in our text. He says, listen, uh, in verse six, he, the, the goat runs into the ram in the fury of his power. And then in the next verse, verse seven, and he was moved with choler. I had to look up the word choler. It's not a word that we use today, but it means bitter envy, bitter rage, vengeance. Alexander the Great is looking for revenge for the wrongs that he perceives Persia has has created as they try to take over Greece. And there's really, if you go look at history, there's really three significant battles that Alexander the Great has with Persia. And he stands by all records drastically outnumbered, drastically outnumbered, hundreds to one potentially. Some of those potentially are exaggerated. We understand this, right? When Herodotus says that here's Persia and they have 600,000 men and Alexander has his 30,000 men, nobody stood there and counted every troop. Doesn't matter. He's greatly outnumbered, and he has decisive victories in these three battles. And in the third battle, that's really to be understood, the fall of the Persian Empire. Alexander the Great takes over this empire. He sweeps through it. He's seeking vengeance. Now, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 49. Jeremiah chapter 49, uh, verses 34 through 39. And mention that without we really don't find Greece or this empire in scripture, but there is this little reference here in Jeremiah chapter 49. We're going to read in verse 34 through the, through 39. It says the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the prophet against Elam. Now, if you'll remember, just pause there for a moment. Let's discuss Elam. When we began to talk about these kingdoms and we went to Genesis chapter 10, the hall of kings, where those lineages are established, Elamites, the people of Elam, this is where they're at. They are Persians. That is who is being discussed here. That is where they are from. And if you go look and it says, hey, in Genesis chapter 10, this is where they went. This is is what's being discussed here. So here is God saying, listen, the Elamites, prophet against Elam, they are facing judgment as enemies of God in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the chief of their might, and upon Elam will I bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven and will scatter them toward all those winds, and there shall be no nation whither the outcasts of Elam shall not come. So they get scattered. They're dispersed throughout the world. For I will cause Elam to be dismayed before their enemies and before them that seek their life. And I will bring upon, bring evil upon them, even my fierce anger, saith the Lord, and I will send the sword after them till I have consumed them. God is not looking to, there's going to be a complete destruction of their empire. And I will set my throne in Elam and will destroy from thence the kings and the princes, saith the Lord. 
Just as God told the nation of the, the kingdom of Judah, listen, I'm giving all of this, the beasts of the field, the, the fowls of the air, everything into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. God is telling Elam, Persia, I'm going to establish a throne there. God himself isn't going to come down and reign, but what he's saying is that I'm going to establish a throne there. And it's not going to be one of you Persians. This is going to be my judgment against you. And that's exactly what we find happening here. As Alexander the Great comes through, we find that Greece is the instrument of correction, the instrument of judgment against Persia. That's exactly what we find. They're completely wiped out. They're dispersed throughout the, throughout the known world in their day and, and beyond. And God establishes Alexander the Great to whatever degree he is and those who follow after him to rule in those areas. Now, back to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter, back to that. Let's read verse 8. Uh, <clears throat> Therefore, the he-goat waxed very great. Okay, so he's running through. He overcomes the Persian Empire. He waxes very great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken, for it came, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, imagine this goat running around, and he's got this one single horn like a unicorn. I mean, he's kind of an odd-looking goat. But there is this one king that was representative. It signifies Alexander the Great. And we find as we look at history, we, Alexander the Great dies a less than honorable death. That He dies young. He's 32. In the prime of life, he's cut off. And that's kind of exactly what we read here in Scripture. And his kingdom, so we have the one horn broken off, this, this notable horn broken off, and we find that four notable ones, four kings rise up, four horns rise up to take the one's place toward the four winds of heaven. That's exactly what we find happens with the empire. The, the nation, excuse me, the, the Grecian empire, as Alexander the, the Great dies, there's and while it may take a little bit of time, according to history, there are four appointed generals, those who were with Alexander, and they're left in charge. And we have Cassander, who takes Macedonia and Greece, so he's over there in the west. Hey, that's one of the directions of the wind, north, south, east, and west. We have, uh, and I'm going to butcher this name, Lysimachus. Sorry, Thrace, Bithynia, Asia Minor. He's kind of to the north end of the kingdom. And he's in charge of that region. Uh, Ptolemy, that's considered south. That's Egypt, right? And that's, and then we have the, the Seleucid, Seleucus, that's how you pronounce the name. Seleucid Empire is what comes out of there. That's Syria, Palestine, the area there around Jerusalem and Arabia, Petraea, that's it, okay? That's the east. Four winds split four ways. The kingdom is divided. It's exactly what we read in Scripture. Thousands of years before there was ever, maybe not thousands, hundreds of years before there was ever 
an empire to be discussed. And here they are, okay? These are the names, this is where they come from. Now I'll tell you this, the Macedonian Empire, the, the Cassander and the Lysimachus, you don't hear much about those in history. They sort of go by the wayside. The ones that are become significant, not only in our text before us today, but in history. And why do they become important in the history? Because they're important in the text, right? History doesn't, history follows the truth of scripture. The truth of scripture doesn't follow history. And I want to make that plain and clear. We see these things in history because they were first true in scripture, not the other way around. And we have to be careful that we don't go grab things, historical events, or those things that we read in the news and try and stuff them into the categories that we find in Scripture. That is a terrible hermeneutic, and it will lead us astray. We'll be blown about by every wind of doctrine. And so, as, as you go through and as you study through prophecy, those kinds of things is part of the reason that I don't enjoy it. Because there is so much out there that you have to weed through if you're going to find good commentaries and those kinds of things. Because people take those current events, whether it's of their day or historical current events, quote unquote, and they try to fit them into Scripture. Now, I'm convinced that this is an accurate description. And what we're talking about is correct interpretation. And that continues and, and, and will, will be a consistent theme even through next week. But we have... The Ptolemies and the Seleucid Empire that rises up there, those two fight. They don't get along. They're, they're, and ultimately, the Seleucid Empire, um, I might be saying that wrong, conquers the Ptolemies, conquers Egypt. That's coming. That's in our text here. But what, that, what is smack dab in the middle? Palestine, Israel. It becomes a staging ground for both armies, effectively. This is where they fight. The people of God are stuck in the middle. It's a long, hard place for them to be for hundreds of years as these factions fight against one another. Now, verse 8 ends the uncontroversial portions of the prophecy. But the, from there on, the rest of this is the controversial, the hard stuff. And we're going to get into that next week. We're going to, it's going to take that much time to, to weed through it. But I want to spend the rest of our day today doing two things. One, developing some context for next week. And we've already developed some. That change in audience, as indicated by the change in language, is significant. Okay, but we want to develop some further context here. We, we want to make sure that we're building upon a sure footing of understanding. If we're going to delve into controversy, we need to have ourselves fully rooted to the best of our ability. <clears throat> so, I want to give you a quick, and I'm not an expert because I don't necessarily subscribe to it, dispensationalism. The way I view dispensationalism is a method of biblical interpretation. Okay? It's an ism. It's a, it's, it's a way that man engages with Scripture 
to try and establish and understand where we're, and it's not even on the slide. I mean, it's, it's not there. You just got to track with me. What I don't like about it and why I don't necessarily subscribe to it is because I see one consistent picture, one consistent theme throughout scripture. And God is in that consistent theme and that consistent uh, story account that we read from Genesis to Revelation engaged in the same process as it involves all of mankind. He may use Israel as a particular illustration of that. As his chosen people, I'm going to set you aside. I'm going to let you be a picture for the world around us. But ultimately, even in the prophecies made all the way back with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even further back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we're looking forward to this redemption, Adam and Eve, Adam in particular, being the federal head, is a representative of not just Israel, but all of mankind. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're not talking about a single people. We're talking about all people. Okay, now, what dispensationalism does in an effort to remain literal in their interpretation of Scripture, which I agree with, be literal, of course, if it's a metaphor, it's a metaphor. That's obvious in language. It's a, it's a literal device to get us to something. People make that a weird thing. That's why I throw it out there. But what dispensationalism does is it says, hey, here's the program for Israel. Here's the program for Gentiles. Here's the program for this or for that. This is the area we live in. And they have seven main eras and those things. I'm not opposed to it as a tool of interpretation. But it is something that man has come up with to interpret scripture. And it's only as good as far as it is consistent with scripture. Okay, so Time of the Gentiles, which is on the slide, right? That's there. It's not, it's a dispensational term. I grabbed it because it does describe something. But it's only a dispensational, <laughs> it borrows the term, dispensationalism borrows that term from Scripture. And so I bring all that up to say that when you go read commentaries, I know this is incredibly boring. It is really boring. When you go read commentaries about end times, about eschatology, those kinds of things, people's theological perspective, they're, whether they're dispensationalist or not, is extremely obvious. Because they're interpreting things through that lens, which can be a problem, right? Because what should be our sole lens? Scripture. Not my method of interpretation. Dispensationalism has some value. I'm not completely discounting it. I just don't necessarily agree with all of it. It's enough of it there. I borrowed a term, and I don't want to cloud the water. So when you go, because if you go start reading about the time of the Gentiles, all you're going to find are dispensational writers. And there's more than one camp. You have all millennial. There's, you know, a lot of the end time stuff is allegorical. There is no literal millennial reign of Christ. And you have the pre-millenarian, pre I don't even know how you say it. Right? You have two camps within dispensationalism. Anyway, they're both trying to interpret things literally. They don't agree with each other, but you're going to, the only place you're really going to find time of the Gentiles is in dispensational literature. 
So I give you that little primer on dispensationalism. The significant difference, just to close that topic, the significant difference that I see with, with what we're going to look at this morning is that the understanding that God is doing both at the same time. Okay, he's not just, here's Israel, they're over here, I'm going to pick that program up again later, which is what dispensational view. In my understanding, right, here is God, he's still comforting, he's still in the business of saving Israel. I mean, there are Jewish believers today. There are people in Israel, people who are Jewish, who are coming to faith all the time. Because there's one story from Genesis to Revelation. He's not saving these people and then those two. He's saving all people. Difference, okay? It's all happening at the same time. He preserves Israel as a unique people. And ultimately, he saves Israel, uh, not a total blindness, by the same grace through faith as he saved all peoples always been true from genesis to revelation how was abraham counted faithful how did he receive grace by faith his faith was counted to him as righteousness it's all been the same it's always been that way okay so time of the gentiles we talked about last week this era in which people are going to unite themselves against god the enemies of god are going to come together against him and against his people I tend to lump together, and while there are those who would definitely disagree with this, I tend to lump together all of God's people. If you're God's people, you're in the family of God. Whomever believed on him to the game gave he the power to become the sons of God, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, right? That, those are God's people. Now, Israel has a significant and a special place in God's economy. I can't discount that by any means. But those who are saved are those who are saved. And Israel is separate from that. You may be part of Israel and not be saved. Just clarifying, okay? But we have this era where the enemies of God are coming together and uniting themselves. And more and more so, the closer we get to the return of Christ. And that is the time of the Gentiles. It is uniquely ruled by the Gentiles. Well, Israel does have a nation today, right? Which only happened during World War II, not that long ago. That's a specific fulfillment of prophecy from Ezekiel. While that happens, who all of the major powers, even today, Israel is a quote-unquote political superpower, are Gentiles. The world is ruled by Gentiles even now. From the time of Nebuchadnezzar in 588 BC, when he comes into Jerusalem and takes Jerusalem, the temple is ultimately destroyed. It gets rebuilt, but then it gets destroyed again in 70 AD. That's a significant thing. Okay. That continuation of Gentile rule in the world continues into the future and ultimately through today. That's it. So, so this time of the Gentiles, I think it is synonymous with the time where the enemies of God are going to unite against it. We talked about that last week. The focus uh, of the chapter is the interaction of Israel with the Gentiles. That's what this chapter is about. So Daniel, God in his mercy toward Israel said, listen, here's what's going to happen. 
This is what you need to be watchful for. These are things we need to be intent about. And I'm going to give it to you in your own language so there's no need of, of translation or mistranslation or, or interpretation. Here it is, Israel, in Hebrew for you to know and to understand. The biblical basis of this principle, of this time of the Gentiles. Like I said, dispensationalists borrowed the term from Scripture. It isn't something they came up with. In Daniel chapter 2, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there are other places we could go, but we're going to sort of stick with things that are along these lines. Daniel chapter 2, we have these successive kingdoms. We have Babylon, we have the Medo-Persian Empire, we have Greece, we have the Roman Empire. We don't have Israel anymore. They're all Gentile kingdoms. Daniel chapter 7, we have four beasts that represent four kingdoms. Gentile kingdoms. We have the same kingdoms represented. Ultimately, we have this establishment of the enemies of God, this time of the Gentiles, where they unite and even coalesce into a political force some point in the future. And then even here in Daniel chapter 8, the specific persecution of Israel by Greece, by a Gentile kingdom. And that's what we're going to look at next week. Let's continue on, though. Turn with me to Luke chapter 21. These are, I'll just be honest, as you're turning to Luke, these messages are hard because I like to be in the Word more. But we have to, um, as we get into these things that are fulfilled prophecy, and if I'm going to say it's fulfilled prophecy, where, where was it fulfilled? Where do we see it in history? And that's sort of what we're doing here. But in Luke chapter 21, as we build this understanding, if we're going to say this is where we're at, is it a biblical thing? Luke chapter 21, verse 24. Uh, and, and while there's some context that we, that we need to be aware of here, this is what it says. They shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. There's going to be a persecution of Israel by Gentile kings, nations, until that time is come, till that's finished. Okay, and, and so this is where dispensationalists make their case, right? Here's, there's a set time from this time to this time it is the time of the Gentiles. And then there was this set time from here to here. That was the time of Israel or, or the time of the law or the time, whatever characteristics they give that. Okay. Like I said, I'm not necessarily totally against it. I don't disagree. I don't agree with all of it. It can be a useful tool. But Jesus acknowledges that there is a time of the Gentiles. You remember as you go through, if you're... I know we have some Lord of the Rings super fans. And when I say super fan, if you have not read the Silmarillion, you're not a super fan. You're a fan. If you've never read the books, and, and, and then you can't be a super fan. But if you have not read the Silmarillion, which is the Genesis document of the Lord of the Rings, written by the creator himself, J.R.R. Tolkien, about where everybody came from, how they came to be, the dispensations, the time of the elves, the time of man, the time of the orcs, all of those things, right? That, that's a dispensation. There is a set period of time. We're not applying 
Tolkien dispensations to Scripture here. We're, we're not doing that. But what I'm saying is that Jesus is telling us that there is a period of time where Jerusalem, where Israel is going to suffer persecution at the hand of Gentiles and will until that time has concluded. And God is the only one in his providence and in his sovereignty that knows when that is. Hey, we, that's the long short of that. God knows. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And let's look at verse 25. It says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Now remember, this chapter, as we, as we study through it, this is where we have the discussion about the branches being grafted in. Right, so here's the tree. The root is Christ himself, ultimately. And then we have this tree that grows out of it, being the nation of Israel. And some of those branches are cut off. And there's this discussion about those other branches being grafted in. And that's a real description of the Gentile people being brought into the family of God. That's the discussion that's happening here. Not every Jew is part of the family of God, is part of that tree that is here. Believing Jews are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Nathaniel, Peter, John. They're believing Jews. They're there with us. And there's this discussion that says, hey, listen, don't Gentile world, don't grow in conceit because those branches could also be grafted in. So there, there's a lot to unpack in this chapter, and we spent some considerable time here when we were here, but for the sake of our time this morning, it says don't be ignorant of this mystery. This is something that you and I may not fully understand how it happens or why it happens, but this is, the, this is what God is doing nonetheless. Blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come. Okay, it has a definite win. According to the foreknowledge of God, all Gentile believers are going to be grafted into the household of God. And when that happens, and he's the only one that will know when it happens, the time, the fullness, the completeness of Gentile believers brought into the house of God is finished. Done. There's no more grafting to be done. Right? We think about 2 Peter 3.9. talks about end times. That's the context. And they're asking the question, when is the coming of this? When is Jesus' second coming? We're looking forward to that, but it's been a long time. What's the holdup? And he says, God's not slack concerning. He, he's not somehow lazy about that promise. God is long suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish. Every person who's going to be grafted in, who's going to be brought in, who will come to faith according to the foreknowledge of God, is going to be brought into that family. And that is when the fullness of the Gentiles comes. That's when, the, it's when that era, for lack of better terms, will, will end. And through all of the midst of that, according to Jesus in Luke chapter 21, the nation of Israel is going to suffer persecution. How many days had Israel been reinstituted in their country 
when all of the surrounding countries came against them. You guys remember this? We don't remember it. We're all way too young. We've read about it in history, right? Here's Israel. World War II is ended. They come in, they take territory there in Israel. They're established as a nation again. And almost immediately, every nation around them attacks them. And they defend themselves and win that battle in six days. Is it six days or seven? This has happened more than once, and one was six days, I think, and one was seven days. Miraculous. God is preserving his people. Okay? This, but that's going to happen. That is the nature of things. Here's the, here's the thing, and we talked about this, that we as believers should expect some persecution because we are brought into this household of God. We are on the forefront of that battle because we're not battling flesh and blood and those things. We're battling a spiritual battle. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. <laughs> we, we had it in there last week. I apologize, guys. Um, the weapons of warfare are not carnal, but are mighty. They're pulling down the strongholds. So take every thought captive to the mind of Christ. That's where we're at in, in 2 Corinthians. And I apologize, I don't have the reference. I think it is chapter 10, but somebody knows. You guys can all find it. We're part of that battle. We don't replace Israel, but when we are brought into the family of God, we are on the front lines effectively. We're going to expect some persecution. The good news is we also expect deliverance. We also expect victory. Okay? That's good news. That's reason for rejoicing. God clearly articulates to you and I that he plans to extend mercy to the nation of Israel so stay with me in Romans chapter 11. Let's look at verses 31 through 32. Even so, have these also now not believed that through your mercy, they also may obtain mercy. For God has concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. So here he is talking about Israel. He says, listen, I've concluded they're all in unbelief, but, but by your because of the mercy that we've received in, in some respects, right? That here we are as believers. God is confirming his desire to deal with Israel in mercy. There is chosen people. He's made particular promises to them. He's going to honor and fulfill every one of those promises to them. Some of those promises yet unfulfilled. Articulates his plan to extend mercy to the nation of Israel. And for you and I, for you and I, it is a confirmation of the security that we have as believers. So we're not finished with this prophecy. We're going to unpack more of it. We're going to get into the controversial, the hard stuff. Hopefully it's not as hard as we have a good foundation, hopefully now, to go forward with. But just to say that we're not finished with it or with those difficulties. But I want to close this morning. I want to sort of wrap up on, on a note of encouragement. The interactions of God, quote-unquote, reconvene at the end of the time of the Gentiles. So from a dispensational point of view, the end of the Gentiles has happened. God reinstitutes, reconvenes his interactions with Israel. And if you go look at their charts and those kinds of things, that's what you see happening. In some respects, there is some accuracy in that interpretation. 
I take exception with the fact that God has been disengaged with Israel this whole time when obviously he has providentially been engaged in their establishment as a nation, in their preservation, in their comfort, so on and so forth. Okay. That aside, God is going to, in particular, pick up his relations, so to speak, quote unquote, with Israel. And what grace that God is in his long suffering would never abandon his people. That he would never say, listen, I've made promises to Israel. That, that you have been my special people, an instrument to, to explain the wholeness and the completeness of the gospel to a lost and dying world that is set against me. That here we are, he preserves them. He promises to deal with them, to never leave them, to never forsake them. He's not going to abandon his people. And so too, you and I, as believers, God has ever been with Israel, and we can trust that he will ever be with us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. As you go through and you read these prophecies that Daniel sees, whether it was in chapter 7 or chapter 8 or even in chapter 9, Daniel is significantly affected physically by the vision that he has. He's sick for a week because of what he's seen, because of what he's encountered, because of the significance of what it means. He knows that there are hard times coming for Israel. He knows that. But like we talked about, uh, as we were going through chapter 7, the point of apocalyptic literature, the primary point of all apocalyptic literature, is to encourage. And as Jesus said, listen, in, in uh, John chapter 15, I believe, well, I'm going to tell you all this stuff ahead of time so that you're not offended. You don't stumble when it happens. Listen, when that persecution, that hardship comes for you and I, we're expecting it. This is exactly what God says. Here we are. We knew it was coming. We've prepared. We've hid the word of God in our heart. We're familiar with it. We're standing firm to live as Christ, to die as gain. Whatever your plan and will for me is, Lord, here I am. God in his mercy, as I said, as we, we reiterate, we're going to get there when we get to Daniel chapter 12. We have this expectation of deliverance. But here's Daniel, he's significantly affected by all that he sees. Yet over and over and over, God is reiterating to Daniel, I am with you, I am with my people. I haven't left you, I haven't forsaken you. And as we look in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, we find the same words to you and to me as Gentile believers. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he had said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. If Israel is God's example people, part of what we as believers need to draw from the book of Daniel is the faithfulness of God to his people. Now, as we go through and as we study through Hebrews, 
a long time ago, we looked at this and I, and I think that in many respects, we emphasized the being content and all of those things. The foundation, the reason we can be content is, content is because we know God is with us, that he has not left us, that he hasn't forsaken us. So no matter what comes our way, as thick or as thin as it may be in my life, God is here. And we have not only that, but the assurances of God in Romans chapter 8, that he's never left us and nothing can separate us from his God. And that in the midst of whatever it is, he is working that for our best to conform us, to mold us, to sanctify us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. For his glory, for the sake of the gospel, and for our best. God has not left us or forsaken us. And I know that it's a hard thing for us to hear, especially in modern times as believers, that we're going to face persecution. It's not fun. It is what we want to hear. It's not the, the light, fluffy stuff that, yet here it is from Christ himself. And I don't think it was simply to his disciples. It was to all of us. We talked a little bit about it this morning in Sunday school in regard to politics and the relationship that we as believers might have as politics. We shouldn't be persecuted because we're trying to legislate morality. That's not the nature of the persecution. We may face persecution as we engage in the political process from a biblical perspective. But that's not why we're persecuted. We're persecuted because we are the disciples of Christ. Because the enemies of God are here in this day and age coming together against him more and more and more, calling those things that he calls evil good and things that he calls good evil, so that we who stand upon the truth of the word of God become the symbol of all that they're trying to put down. As we are the ambassadors of our king, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we stand out here, this is what God says. This is the standard of righteousness that he's established. And we can never measure up to it. Even in the midst of that, in the midst of the persecution and the hardship that has resulted from that, no matter what it looks like, whether it's just scorn and mockery, a little teasing and people jabbing at us at work or whatever it may be. And or maybe, God forbid, something much more severe or we're in prison, or maybe faced with death, or some punishable act, like our neighbors across the border to the north, who if they stand on the word of God and preach certain portions of the Bible, will find themselves in jail. We have the assurance and the confidence and the, and the illustration of the faithfulness of God over and over and over that he has not left us, that here he is right there with us. And you add to that that God is completely sovereign. And I think to myself that no matter, that if God is completely sovereign, if I find myself somehow afflicted for the gospel, then I have more value to him in that affliction, that I can bring him more glory in that affliction than I could without it. And nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Turns me to Genesis chapter 28. I want to look at two passages here where God assures Israel that he is with them and hasn't forsaken them. Genesis chapter 28. 
I want to read verse 15. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. This is spoken to Jacob, whose name is later changed to Israel, right? He's, he's conspired with his mother. He's gotten the blessing of his father. And, and Esau's out to get him. And so he flees. And this is what God promises him. I am with thee and will keep thee in all places. No matter where you go, Jacob, I am with you. I will keep you in all places, whither you go, and will bring thee again into this land. Right? You and I, we read about in Hebrews chapter 12 that they are looking, for, uh, excuse me, rather Hebrews 11, they are looking for this land this, that, that is coming, and it's not here. Because if it was here, they would have just gone back to where they, they would have gone to that place. But they're looking forward with expectation and hope of this land. And you and I as believers have the same hope. The good news is, is that, it, that this around us, the stuff that we're talking about here, this is not the end. This is not as good as it gets. This is, not a, this is also not as bad as it gets, but this is not the end for us. There's something greater. And no matter where we may go, no matter where we might find ourselves in the midst of it, God says, I will never leave you. Wherever you go, I will be there. David would say something similar. In context, even of his sin, he says, wherever I go, there you are. I can't hide in the depths of the sea. I can't hide over there. I can't hide over there. Wherever I am, there you are with me. And that's good news, and I want to encourage us with that fact, because it doesn't matter if we're in the midst of sin, if we're stuck, if we're struggling with hard things in our lives, things that are not honoring to the Lord. He hasn't forsaken us. He hasn't rejected us. He is there with us wherever we go. Now, he may not be pleased with what we're doing, and he may be using that as a uh, you bringing things about in our lives to help correct us of that, which we should expect because Scripture tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, that's how he will deal with his children. But he didn't leave us. He didn't withdraw from you and I and say, oh, boy, they're way off the beaten path, throw my hands in the air, and I'm done. I'm going to move on somewhere else. He says, no, I'm a loving father. Wherever they go, I'm going to be with them, and I'm going to bring them back to myself if they will come. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, if you'll turn there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Three verses six through eight. Be strong and of a good courage. God tells Israel that over and over and over. He reiterates at the beginning of Joshua. But this is a phrase that you and I should have memorized. Be strong and of a good courage. Why? Who is telling me that? God himself is telling me that. Be strong and of a good courage. 
For the Lord thy God, he it is that does go with thee. He will not fail thee nor forsake thee. You jump with me to verse 8. And the Lord, he it is that does go before thee. He will be with thee. He will not fail thee. Neither forsake thee. Fear not. Neither be dismayed. This is the nation of Israel. And, you'll, and, and in Deuteronomy, right, this is the generation that didn't pass the wilderness for 40 years till they all passed away because they didn't trust the Lord because they were fearful, because they were dismayed. Why? Because there's giants in the land, because it's going to be a process. It's hard for us to go into that land and to conquer. I'm convinced that the promised land is a picture of our life as believers. It's not a picture of heaven. I don't read about anywhere in heaven and in God's presence where any enemies have strongholds. But I do read about that in this life. And God doesn't immediately, upon the moment of our conversion, when we put faith in Jesus Christ, we're born again. He doesn't pull us out at all. Here you go. No, he leaves us in it to be his witnesses so that as we are dealing with things, as God, through the circumstances that are around us, may allow giants in our life, hard things, things to overcome, and as we overcome those through his grace, that stands as a witness to the world around us. And he says to you and I, just as he would say to this nation that's about to enter into the promised land, this land where God said it is flowing with milk and honey, it is good, it is rich, it is abundant. Everything that you need is provided for you, which is true, and it is true. True for Israel, as it is true for you and I. In Christ, everything that we have is provided. But there are giants in that land. There are things that come our way that we don't want to experience. I don't want to go through. It's hard. It's pain and suffering, whatever it may be. Nonetheless, there it is. But God assures this generation, I'm going with you. We're going to go in there together. There are two guys from the previous generation who get to go in, Joshua and Caleb. They were the two spies that had gone into the land who said, no, it doesn't matter if there's giants. It doesn't matter if there are grasshoppers in their sight. God is with us. Who can be against us? That was their position. And almost nobody listened to them. That's why the generation, this generation didn't go in. But Joshua and Caleb, those two faithful guys who trusted the Lord, and he said, this is, it doesn't matter how big they are, God is more than able. Those two guys get to go in. And what's interesting to me is they both get their own special area in the promised land. You know, the rest of the promised land is divided amongst the 12 tribes. And not all 12 of them make it in there, right? We know the story, but it's divided. But Joshua and Caleb get their own inheritance. And as they're giving that inheritance to Caleb, they're like, hey, Caleb, you can come over here. And he, he said, I don't, that's not what I want. He says, give me that mountain over there. Why? Because I know there are still giants there. I'm going to go and conquer it. Because I still trust the Lord. Because I know that he is faithful. I know that I don't have to fear or be dismayed because wherever I go, no matter how big the giants are, God is with me, and if God is with me, who can be against me? 
Nation of Israel is an example of all of these things. Persecution, trials, sinfulness, or spiritual adultery on our part. Seasons of spiritual success or growth on our part. God is with us through all of it. He doesn't say, hey, looks like you're doing really well, like when you teach your kids to ride their bicycle. Right? The training wheels have come off, and you know that there's going to be a spill, so you got your hand on the seat. And eventually, they're just going along, and you're just running. You're not even touching the bike, right? God doesn't do that with them. <laughs> He's always there. Doesn't matter how well we're doing, he's still there. Doesn't matter how badly we may be doing, he's still there. All of it, God is with us. Turns me to John chapter 10, last passage here, we're gonna, and then we'll pray. John chapter 10. Jesus is here giving a parable about being the good shepherd. And, and in part of that, he talks about that he is the good shepherd, that he is the one uh, that, that is shepherding all of these sheep. He's, he, as customary, he'll lay himself. He's the one gate, so to speak. The sheep can't come in unless they come through him, which is a consistent picture in Scripture. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. But we have to remember that on the other side of that, once we're in, we have this protection. There's nothing coming in and grabbing us, and there's nothing coming in that shouldn't be there. Jesus stands as the security of believers. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. No one can pluck them out of hand. Nobody can come in and steal those sheep. They would have to go through the shepherd. And Jesus says, listen, my Father is greater than all. You can't overcome him. He's unbeatable. He's unfathomable. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. My Father, who is the creator of the universe, spoke everything into existence. And if he says you're in, you're in. What can separate us from the love of God? He is for us. Who can be against us? Who can remove us from his hands? The short answer is nothing and no one. Daniel's affected greatly by what he sees. But don't miss the assurance that if God is faithful to his people, Israel, as an example, as a type, as a picture of you and I and the relationship that we have with him, he's faithful with us. As we get through the end of Hebrews chapter 11, and you, you look at that, it says, therefore, in Hebrews chapter 12, therefore, because we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, because we have the testimony and the witness of all these people who have experienced the faithfulness of God, his never leaving them, his never forsaking them, let us 
put off the sin that is so easily beset us and run with patience the, the race that is set before us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to come together in your name. I praise you, Lord, that even though we get into these difficult things, God, you have, in your word, given us such assurance of its accuracy and of your trustworthiness. The specificity within this prophecy that we read here, Lord, lets us know that it is true, that it is correct. And if, Lord, we can trust those things, what else can we trust your word for? Ultimately, in a word, Lord, we know that we can trust it for everything. And God, I pray that as we have opportunity to study through these prophecies, to look at the difficulties that are found therein, that, Lord, your spirit would lead us in truth. And not only that, Lord, as you have said in your word, the spirit being the earnest, the down payment, the assurance of our salvation, God, would you help us to realize that as your nation, the people of Israel have never been forsaken by you. And that we are brought into the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ, that, Lord, ultimately we are sure and secure in you as a result of what Jesus Christ did. No matter what may come, persecution, hardship, good times, bad times, ups and downs, Lord, no matter what happens, you are for us and not against us. Would you comfort our hearts and minds with that simple yet very profound truth, Lord? that we may be those who would willingly and with eagerness trust like Joshua and Caleb and run forward into your promised land to take over those areas that are yet to be conquered. We thank you, Lord. We praise you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.